Delighted that you're here, and I hope you've got your Bible to study with us. As we began our study this morning, looking at a Bible passage, we began a study by looking at Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse 14. In Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse 14, the text says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. We looked at a second passage as an introduction, Romans 13 and in verse 11, and do this knowing the time that it is high time to wake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. And we pointed out in our study this morning that these passages do not refer to literal sleep or literal life, but to spiritual. And here is the point. The point is we can reach the point that we may be sleeping, we may be dazing spiritually, That affects our worship, that affects our whole service to the Lord, even affects our purity or the lack thereof. We gave several evidences of our lack of enthusiasm, our lack of excitement, by looking at the concept that we could be sleeping spiritually. For example, there may be apathy, may be a lack of excitement about our service, lack of attendance, expressions of boredom, and on down the line. And so with that, we began a study that I call Awake and Come to Life. And our objective and our goal is to make our services more lively, more exciting, more edifying, uh, filled with enthusiasm, that our singing may have more life and more meaning, that we might listen better to, those, the, to the things from God's Word, and less formalism and less hypocrisy. This morning we talked about the Lord we serve. Tonight we want to focus on returning to our first love. Here's what we saw this morning. We saw our Lord is real and He's majestic. Those were the two main things we wanted to see. We we not only saw that, but we saw he's really coming again, and that calls for some commitment, and that calls for some excitement. So let's talk about this principle of returning to our first love. Let's open our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 2. Those who have even a smattering knowledge of the Scriptures understand that that would know that's where we're headed when we talk about returning to our first love. Let's talk about the church at Ephesus as an introduction to our thoughts, and then we'll build some principles from that. And I want us to focus about the church at Ephesus. Here is a church, a letter written to a church, the church at Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, 1 to 7. And the letter says this church had left their first love. Let's look at verse 4. We'll look at surrounding things in a moment. But verse 4 says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you left your first love. Now, what do we know about this church? You say, well, there may be this is if we don't know anything, which we do, but if we didn't know anything about this church, you may say, well, this church never has been what it should be, never has had enthusiasm, never has had the zeal that they should have had, but that's not the case at all. Let's talk about this church in its beginning. Here's a church that began with dedication and began with excitement. Let's go back to Acts chapter 19. When the gospel was planted at Ephesus... There were those there that made great sacrifice to become children of God. I want you to notice this in verses 18, 19, and 20 of Acts chapter 19. That there were many, not just a few, but many who came confessing and telling their deeds. Many who practiced magical arts brought their books and burned them in the sight of them all. And they counted the value of them and it was total 50,000 pieces of silver. We'll come back to verse 20 in just a moment. So with great sacrifice, they obeyed the gospel. So it began with dedication and began with excitement. 
There is enthusiasm as this church began. Well, this church grew. Look at verse 20 that we just looked at in our, the context in Acts 19. So the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. So there were many that started this church, and here's a church then that grew rapidly, perhaps because they were a church that was dedicated and they were devoted and they were excited about their service to the Lord. Look at verse, uh, chapter 20 now beginning at verse 17. They grew rapidly and they then were able to appoint elders. They had men among them that they could appoint to serve and to lead. It met the qualifications we read about later in the New Testament. Look at Acts 20 and verse 17. That from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. I'm not concerned in this study what he said to the church, but he commended them and then warned them. But nonetheless, he, this church had developed to the point they had elders. What else do we know about this church? Well, let's go back to Revelation chapter 2. By the time Revelation is written, chapter 2 is written, this letter to the church at Ephesus, this church was commended for a number of things. Here's one of the first things. I learned from this context that they were an active church. This is not a dead church. This is, we've all visited places where you think all they need is just another shovel of dirt and, and pack them down and they're dead and they're buried. There's nothing lively in this church at all. But that wasn't the case here. This was a very lively church, an active church. Look at chapter 2 and in verse 2. I know your works, he said. So here was an active church. That's not all. This was an aggressive church. They were aggressive in what they were doing. I know your works and your labor. The American Standard translates that tall. And so here is some strenuous effort that's put forth. So not only was it an active church, this is an aggressive church in getting the things done that need to be done. But that's not all. They were a determined church. Look at verse 2 and verse 3. He said, I know your, love, your work, your labor, and your patience, he said. Furthermore, at verse 3, that you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. So here is a church that is an active church. It's an aggressive church. Furthermore, it is a determined church. They're not letting the pressures get to them so that they're giving up and throwing up their hands and quitting. But that's not all. Look at verse 2 and in verse 6. They are doctrinally correct. They stood firm for the doctrine. He said that you have tested those, I'm reading it verse 2, that say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. In other words, some were claiming to be apostles. They put them to the test and they exposed them for being the false teachers they were. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. By this, but this you have, that you hate the de deeds of the Nicolaitans. They also have a doctrine that we see later in the next letter. But the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So here is a church that's doctrinally sound. <clears throat> so you look at this church, if we were to visit, it's very active, it's aggressive, they're determined, they've persevered, they're doctrinally correct. They're not letting error creep in. It makes us raise the question, what could be wrong with a church like this? This is probably the church I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of an active church, an aggressive church, a determined church, and a church that's doctrinally sound. Ray Summer says, the entire commendation leaves one inclined to question if there could be anything wrong with such a church. It carried on its surface in the face of difficulties. It rejected false teachers. It hated sin. It did not grow weary in the Lord's work. What could be wrong with a church like that? Well, now let's go to verse, verse 7, or, or verse, verse 4. Verse 4 says, they had left their first love. In spite of the fact they were aggressive, in spite of the fact they were doctrinally sound, in spite of the fact they were active, 
The text says they've left their first love. Summer says that means the honeymoon is over. They were loyal but lacking. Hark writers suggest in form it was still a sound church, which fended all false doctrine, but the fire had gone out. There is more to serving God than an adherence to mechanical traditional routine. Well, they stood firm for the doctrine. There were many things they were doing good and doing right. But the honeymoon was over. They were loyal and lack, but lacking. Their fire was gone. In other words, their love and their enthusiasm and their excitement had vanished. So now look at verse 5. His answer to the problem was, since they had left their first love, their fire is gone. He tells them at verse 5, Remember therefore from whence you are fallen, repent and do your first works. In other words, he tells them to remember, repent, and return. In other words, remember what you used to be. Remember how it was when you started there in Acts chapter 19, when you burned all of your works and there were 50,000 pieces of silver worth of things that were sacrificed. Remember your excitement and your enthusiasm. Remember from which you have fallen. Repent. Change your mind. Change your heart. And furthermore, do your first works. What does that mean? We're going to end on this note in a moment. What it means is do what you used to do. In other words, when you were excited, start doing the things that you did when you were excited. When you had zeal, start doing the things when you had zeal. When you were on fire, do the things that you were doing when you were on fire. Remember, repent, and do your first works. So let's begin listing some things that we might do that we might return to our first love if, we've, if our fire has gone. Perhaps in your case, the fire may be gone. In another person's case, it may be their fire is just starting. But if you begin to look at yourself in light of what we studied this morning, you say, you know what, I, I need a greater fire. I need a greater enthusiasm. What do I need to be doing? Well, here's the first thing. Let's be excited about the service of the Lord. Be excited about the worship of the Lord. I want to suggest to you that the early disciples were indeed excited. Let's go to Acts chapter 4. We don't have time to trace every reference that tells us about their excitement, but look, notice in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. This was the apostles. By the way, by the way, these very men that we're going to read about here in Acts chapter 4 were the ones that Jesus had warned in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. They seemed to be a little despondent at that point, a little discouraged. Maybe their fire was waning just a little bit. But there's something that happened between that point and this one that things have changed. We'll come back and talk about what that might have been. Look at verse 19. They had just been told not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And Peter said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. You're not going to stop us. We're excited about this message we're preaching. What's changed between John 14 and this point? They had become convinced Jesus was raised from the dead. That stirred their excitement and their zeal. Let's look at another passage. It tells me the early disciples were excited. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. There are more in the book of Acts we could trace. But 2 Corinthians 8 gives us this picture. 2 Corinthians 8 verses 1 to 5. When Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, commending them, and, and commanding them rather, that they were to lay something aside for the needy saints in Jerusalem, he talks about those who gave willingly and gives them as an example, the brethren of Macedonia. Notice what he said. He said, moreover, brethren, we want to make known to you the grace that God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Well, what about Macedonia, Paul? 
Well, in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. Well, what are you saying they did, Paul? Well, look at verse 3. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, beyond their ability, they freely gave. Here were those who were in poverty themselves, and they freely gave and willingly gave because, notice verse 5, they first gave themselves to the Lord. They were excited about the service of the Lord. Now, I want to tell you, we have every reason to be excited in our service to the Lord. Why is that? Well, because we're sons and we're children of God. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 3. We won't notice the details of every passage. I want to get the concepts before us. Look at 1 John chapter 3. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. In other words, he's saying, wow, look at this. Look at this, that God has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Look at the privilege that God gave us of allowing us to be His sons. We have every reason to be excited. Secondly, because we have access to His blood. 1 John chapter 1 and in verse 7. Chapter 1 and in verse 7, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. That's the people of God, the children of God, the sons of God. We have access to His blood. Furthermore, we have the hope of eternal life. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10 and in verse 37. This was a word of encouragement to those who were discouraged, by the way. Who, by the way, chapter 12 suggests their hands were hanging down, their knees getting feeble, maybe their fire is waning. Maybe they're losing their enthusiasm. Chapter 10, verse 34, For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing this. Knowing what, Paul? Knowing this, that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. You have the hope of eternal life. You have every reason to be excited. Because all spiritual blessings are in Christ. Ephesians 1 and in verse 3. We have brethren who care for us. Bearing one another's burdens, Galatians chapter 6. So that when we're overtaken in a fall, those who are spirituals help restore us. We have brethren who care for us. And furthermore, we have the privilege of prayer. We can approach God at any moment and any time and ask Him of the, for the blessings and the, the privileges that we receive from Him and thank Him for those. So we have every reason to be excited. I want to suggest to you that excitement comes from within and not external. Here's what I mean by that. Excitement comes from within, from you deciding who and what you are rather than dependent upon external circumstances. Let me give you a suggestion of why that may be true. Let's look at Luke chapter 10 and in verse 20. Jesus said this to the disciples. He said they should rejoice. There's some excitement in that. He said rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In other words, it's not just the opposite of that. I'm excited because my name's written in heaven rather than knowing my name is written in heaven because I'm excited. It's not, it's not the opposite. And so here it's coming from within. Because I know I'm in a right relationship with God, because I know what God has said, that stirs some joy and some excitement. But that's not all. I want you to go to Philippians chapter 3 with me, if you will. Paul was excited. He talked about rejoicing in the Lord. And again I say rejoice. He said rejoice always. That's some excitement. He was excited about receiving some support, not because of the money, but because of the fellowship he received from the brethren. 
Philippians chapter 4. By the way, Philippians chapter, the, the whole book. Philippians is written from prison. Paul was excited though he was in prison. So it wasn't based on external circumstances. Excitement comes from within. We must show and we must produce excitement. Usually we show our feelings about what we're doing, whether we're excited or not. It might be working. If you're not excited about your work, you show that. Kind of hard not to show that. And if you are excited about your job, it's, not, it's hard not to show that you're excited about your job. Or maybe it's playing games, or maybe it's a party, or maybe it's eating somewhere that you really enjoy. We manifest our feelings in what we do. The same thing should be true in our worship and our service. If I'm excited about my service, if I'm excited about my worship, I should show and reflect that. Look at Psalm 122 and in verse 1. David said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. In other words, I was excited about that. I was excited to go to worship. David demonstrated and showed that he was excited. Service and worship should be done heartily, as we mentioned this morning. That was one of the beginning passages we considered, Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. And that is, we do it with some life and some vitality and some excitement and enthusiasm. Some have suggested not just talking about worship, but anything you do, that if you act like you're excited, it can begin to stir some excitement within you. For example, you're going somewhere where you're not excited about going, but if you act like you're excited about that, next thing you know, that stirs some excitement within you. And you begin to be excited and you enjoy that. It might be a game, it might be going to someone's house, it might be going to a place to eat. The same would happen with worship if I act like I'm excited. I, I want to be here, and I want to worship, and I want to praise my God. I want to tell you, that will help our worship and our service. That's going to help our worship and our service if we all have this enthusiasm. Look at Ecclesiastes 9 and in verse, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Same principle of Colossians 3. What if all of us worshiped with all of our might and all of our enthusiasm? A.M. Burton said, a lack of ability sometimes results in favor, but a lack of enthusiasm always does. I say amen. Back to Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse 19. We looked at that or alluded to that at least earlier. Enthusiasm makes us worship. Perhaps in this case, sing in such a fashion if we have the zeal and enthusiasm that others are uplifted and they want to sing with us. If we're singing enthusiastically and with some excitement. So what can I do to, to return to that first love? Maybe like the church at Ephesus where the fire is gone, I first of all can be excited. Here's the second thing I can do. I can enter worship with a purpose. I can enter worship with a purpose. I raise the question, could our Christianity become churchanity? What do we mean by that? Well, just being here, at least occasionally, sometimes we think just fulfills my obligation. I'm to go to church. In other words, our service becomes a ritual. It becomes a ritual, a, a tradition, a routine. We come and we go through without much thought, without about the importance of what we're doing, without much thought about the purpose of what we're doing, so we become dedicated to the church or to the system rather than to Christ. Or maybe we're converted to the people and the association with the people rather than being converted to Christ. Has your Christianity turned into churchanity? 
so that you're more wedded to a church, maybe you're more wedded to the association, more wedded to the people than you are to the Lord Jesus Christ. If I'm wedded to Christ, I'm committed to Christ, recognizing He's real and majestic, then that's going to stir some enthusiasm. Let's look at a few passages, starting with Ephesians 5.19 again. We're here for the purpose of praising and honoring God. That's not a new revelation to anybody present. All we're doing is making a reminder of things we already know. Let's go to Ephesians 5 and verse 19. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual song, singing and making melody in your heart, notice the text says, to the Lord. So we're not merely singing for our enjoyment. We're not merely singing to one another, which we are singing to one another, but this is an effort of praising our God in heaven, singing to the Lord. We've come for the purpose of praising and honoring our God. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 13, if you will, and in verse 15, Hebrews chapter 13 and in verse 15, therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips. So let us offer sacrifice unto God. What's the sacrifice? The fruit of our lips. It's going to be praise unto God. We're here for the purpose of raising honor and praise unto God. Let's turn to the 116th Psalm. We're just looking at a principle repeated numerous times in Old and New Testaments. We're looking repeatedly at the principle of worshiping and praising God. That's our purpose. Let's go to Psalm 116. And notice the psalmist said in 116 and in verse 12, this is a psalm of thanksgiving. And notice at verse 12 he said, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? In other words, I need to worship as one who's been richly blessed. I need to enter into worship recognizing, you know what, I've been abundantly blessed. Remember all the blessings we listed a moment ago? And listing those at least in my mind, rehearsing those in my mind, I should come to worship recognizing I'm here to worship the one who blessed me richly. Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I need to worship as one in whom Christ lives. Christ living in me, therefore I'm here to worship and praise and to honor God. Other things may be accomplished while we're here. Like what? Well, I might visit with friends. I might spend time with family. I might have discussion and ask questions about various secular matters to people, but the purpose here is to worship and to honor our God. Secondly, our purpose is not only to worship and honor God, but to be edified and to edify other people. Let's go back now to this principle of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and in verse 26. There were some things being done in the church at Corinth that were not edifying at all. And so Paul writes and addresses that, and he said, how is it then, brethren, when you come together, each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation? In other words, when they come together, they were not to have a, a, a tongue, for example, unless there was interpretation of that tongue. Well, why, why would that be? Well, we noticed earlier, if we'd read earlier in verses 1 to 5, that all things are to be done unto edification. But notice at the end of verse 26, let all things be done for edification. In other words, to go through a part of a worship service and it's not edifying, it's, it's useless, it's worthless. Like speaking in a tongue in the days of spiritual gifts where there's no interpreter, no one's edified. So here's the point to be learned. We come together to edify one another. So if one has a psalm, it needs to be that's unto edification. If he has a teaching, it needs to be for edification. If, if he's going to speak in tongues in the days of spiritual gifts, make sure there's an interpretation so that one might be edified. 
Let's go to Colossians 3, 16. We've alluded to Ephesians 5. Here is the parallel account in Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 16. Colossians 3.16 says our worship is not only to praise and to honor God, to build up one another. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You see, as Shannon is leading us this evening in songs, not only are we praising God, but we're edifying and building up one another in songs. We should have the attitude when we come together, I want to participate, I want to do all I can to be edified and help others to be edified. Is that your spirit? Is that your attitude? What can I do to return to the first love? I can be excited. I can enter worship with a purpose. But thirdly, our worship needs to be from the heart. Worship in truth is not all there is to worship. Let's go to John 4, 24. Jesus, in talking to that woman at the well, said, The hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, we give great emphasis to worshiping God in truth. We want to make sure that it's scriptural. We don't want to sing an unscriptural song. We want to make sure that what we're doing is authorized. In other words, we don't have instrumental music, mechanical instruments of music, because that's not authorized. But just as important as worshiping God in truth, we're to worship God in spirit. What does it mean to worship God in spirit? Perhaps the Bible serves again as its own best commentary, so let's turn to Romans chapter 2. This is not talking about worship. I'm focusing on the use of a phrase. That's all we're doing with Romans 2. So let's go to Romans chapter 2. He's talking about one who is a true Jew, which is one who is an insincere Jew. What does he say about that? He said, for he is not a Jew, I'm reading at verse 28, who is one outwardly, nor that circumcision that was outward in the flesh. In other words, a one who, who goes through the motions and is outwardly a Jew, that's not a true Jew. That's not what it's all about. What are you, what are you saying, Paul? All right, let's see. Look at verse 29. For he is a Jew who is one, now notice this, inwardly, and circumcision that is of the heart, here's another way of wording it, in the spirit. So worshiping God in the Spirit is not just outwardly worshiping God, but worshiping God from the heart that is sincere and inwardly. So I'm to worship God not only outwardly, I'm to worship God inwardly. In other words, it's sincere worship that focuses on the words and the thoughts. That's worshiping God from the heart. Now it's possible to go through the motions and merely go through the motions. How so? I could get distracted while I'm worshiping. The songs could become so familiar, I say the words without thinking about the thoughts or the meaning. Particularly familiar songs that we sang for years and years and years, and we can sing them from memory, and I could, without even looking at the book or looking at the screen, I can sing those, and I can say those words without even thinking the meaning of those. And so we go through the motion. When prayers are offered, we know the phrases that Brother So-and-so always uses. And we may think little about his words being our words of our prayer as well because we're supposed to be praying. Look at Matthew chapter 15. Jesus talked about how worship could be empty. For in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. They're teaching doctrine, doctrinal error, and that rendered their worship useless or empty or vain. 1 Peter 3 makes the same point in verse 7 that your prayers could be hindered. 
The prayers are offered, but they're vain. They're empty. They're useless. Didn't accomplish anything. God wasn't honored. God wasn't glorified. Now, here's the seriousness of not worshiping from the heart. The seriousness is we're not doing what God directs. God said, worship in spirit and in truth, and I'm worshiping in truth, but not in spirit. But I'm more interested in this in Malachi chapter 1. Turn back to that last book of the Old Testament. He's one of the minor prophets. Malachi chapter 1. You remember how Malachi, we've talked repeatedly about how the people in this prophet or that he's addressing had offered their sick and their lame and their blind. They were worshiping all right, but they were not worshiping as God would have them worship. And notice he said at verse 10, Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle the fire of my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Here's the point I want you to see. Though they were attempting to worship, though they were attempting to serve, God said, I'm not accepting that at all. So what's the seriousness of our fire going out so that I'm not worshiping as God would have me to worship? God's not accepting that worship and God's not pleased with my worship at all. So what can I do to return to my first love? To go back and get that fire and that enthusiasm that's gone and vanished. I can be excited. I can enter worship with a purpose. I can worship from the heart, but I can also repent and put away sin that may be in my life. I want to suggest to you that enthusiasm and zeal can be killed by sin. I'm not saying that every time that zeal has waned, that that means you're deep involved in sin. That's not the point. But what I am suggesting, sometimes the thing that causes that enthusiasm to wane and it begins to diminish, it might be because I'm involved in sin. You see, the word can be choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasure. Those are things that are not even sinful within themselves. The point being made is that there are some things that can crowd out and choke spirituality and things that are spiritual in their nature. So there may be something going on in our lives that's choking and crowding out our enthusiasm and our fire. Sin absolutely pulls us away from God. Your sins and your iniquities have separated you and your God. So sin comes as a wedge and drives man from God. And as we're driven further from God by our continual sin, we're not interested in worshiping and praising and honoring our God as we once were. We're not as excited about that. So it may be that your zeal, your, exi- uh, your excitement, your enthusiasm has waned because of some sin in your life. It may be something else going on. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 2, if you will. The answer for this church at verse 7, verse 5, remember from which you are fallen, repent and do your first works. So if there is something that has caused me to lose my zeal, my, my enthusiasm, my excitement, and it's all waned and the fire is all gone, what I need to do is I need to repent. What that means is turn from any evil that I've done. Matthew 12, 41 says that the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. You say, okay, that's interesting. But what's really interesting is when you look at Jonah's account of that, it said they turned from their evil works, Jonah three ten. What does that tell me? It tells me that repentance in Matthew 12, 41 means they turned from their evil works. They turned away from sin. That's what repentance involves. It means they turn away from evil. It means you change your mind. And ultimately, you change your life. What does that mean? 
Well, let's look at Romans 6, and then we'll come back to Revelation chapter 2. The principle, the whole chapter, is raising the question, shall we continue in sin? In other words, now that I've obeyed the gospel, now that I've become a Christian, I've repented, do I continue in sin? And he says, God forbid, in no way. So the rest of the chapter now is giving argumentation why you don't continue in sin, because you're dead to sin, because you're alive unto God, because you've been raised to a new and a different life, because of the wages of sin is dead. A number of reasons he gives in the context why you don't continue to make practice of sin. You change your life. That's what repentance involves. But let's go back to Revelation chapter 2 as we bring our study to a close. Remember what he said in verse 5? Here's a church that was doing well in a number of areas. So much so you think, what could be wrong with this church? And he said, but there is this problem. You've left your first love. You're loyal, but you're lacking. What do we do about it? Look at verse 5. Remember from which you're fallen, repent, and do your first work. In other words, do what you did before you lost your enthusiasm in your zeal. You say, well, what, what was that? That's why he said, remember, go back, go back, go back. In other words, you say, well, you know, I, I, I noticed that, that in the last year I've kind, of, I've kind of lost my zeal. All right, go back in your mind. Remember, remember what it was like before you lost that zeal and that enthusiasm. Go back even further, maybe when you first obeyed the gospel. And think about that excitement and that zeal. Remember and start doing what you did before you lost that enthusiasm. Look again at verse 5. Remember from which you are fallen, repent and do your first works. What were the first works? Well, they brought their books and they burned them. They made great sacrifice. Make a great sacrifice again. Give up some things for the service of the Lord. Remember that zeal when you, when you came laying your books down and you burned them and that excitement when the church grew? You remember that? Then go back to that. Go back to that. And you just start doing what you're supposed to do. It's not complicated. Sometimes people will approach one of the elders or a preacher or Bible class teacher and say, I, I just feel like I've, I've lost some of my fire and my enthusiasm. What do I do? They're expecting some complicated answer. It's pretty simple. Just start doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be going to church all the time? Then start doing that. Supposed to be excited? Then start doing that. Supposed to focus in worship? Then start doing that. Whatever you're supposed to be doing, just start doing that. So what have we seen in our study? Returning to our first love, it means a number of things. Here's how it's done. Get excited. Enter worship with a purpose. Worship from the heart and repent and turn away sin. Now let's close with some suggestions. And I recognize some of these are mere suggestions and take them for what they're worth. What are some things that may help us in returning to our first love? Focus on an attitude, the right attitude when you come to worship. In other words, rather than getting in the car and, and, getting, and rushing to get here and you get here, what, what's your focal point? Our focal point sometime before we even get here, but at least by the time we come through the door, is I've come for the purpose to worship and honor my God. So whether I got to get completely 
ready as I wanted to be, got to wear the, the outfit I wanted to wear or whatever, it doesn't matter. I'm here for the purpose of worshiping and honor God. Begin with that attitude. Secondly, sing out. The psalmist talks about crying out unto God, praising God, lifting up our voices to God. So when we sing, sing out. Sing out enthusiastically. Listen to the words of the song as if you were going to be questioned afterwards. What if somebody were standing at the door asking questions about what was that last song we sang? What was the message? And you were going to get a reward if you answered it correctly. Would you listen carefully? Listen to the words of the song as if someone were going to question you afterwards. It could be. The Lord could ask you. And listen to the words of the prayer as if someone were going to question you as you get outside. What was that prayer about? What, what was the content of that prayer? What did you just pray about in that last prayer? Have the attitude, I'm going to try to work harder at my worship and my daily service. I'm going to try. I'm going to see what I can do. I'm, I'm going to try to, to rebuild and kindle the fire even greater. And during Bible study periods, and the sermon, here's what I'm going to do. Bring your Bible and use it and follow. I am amazed. This is a suggestion. I am amazed at people who can do textual studies without ever looking at the text. I have never reached that point. I am amazed when we do textual studies that someone can see the text in its context without ever looking at the text or the context. So bring a Bible, electronic Bible, a paper copy, whatever you've got. Bring your computer. We don't care. And open your Bible and follow along in your Bible. Take notes. I take notes sometimes and then throw them away if I already have that information. Because taking notes helps me listen and focus and prepare ahead, particularly for Bible study. We're going to be studying, for example, 2 Thessalonians 3 this morning. If you'd read it beforehand, that enhances your study. Those are just some suggestions to build fire and enthusiasm that we might return to our first love. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come this evening believing that Jesus is real, he's the Christ, he's the Son of God, that he's majestic? And believing that, would you acknowledge your faith in Christ? having repented of your sins and then be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of your sins. If you're subject in any way, we hope and trust that you'll come while together we stand and while we sing.